about God's grace, uh, the love that he has for us, the undeserved mercy that we have received, but then also the task, uh, the task to go and to make him known. And one of the ways that we make him known is by the manner in which we conduct our lives. Now, how we live speaks. Now, we recognize that we can't just let our lives speak because we must also speak, but our lives do say something about the power of God, about the grace of God, about the transforming power of the gospel. And that's significant when we come to our topic this morning, because our topic morning is one that can be difficult, one that can be challenging, one that can be controversial, but one that if we get it right, and as we get it right as people... It speaks to those around us. It speaks to our families. It speaks to our, our co-workers. It speaks loudly. And the topic we're going to talk about this morning is marriage. We're also going to talk about divorce and remarriage. As we are journeying our way through Mark chapter 10, that's where the text has brought us this morning. And so this morning, we're going to talk about marriage, divorce, and actually in God's will. What is God's will for us? It's no secret that marriage in our culture is facing a crisis. The very definition of marriage has been turned upside down recently. As we look around us, we see fractured relationships. We see marriage relationships where there's sexual immorality that is breaking relationships. We see unresolved conflicts in marriage that creates frustration and a hardness of heart that leads to bitterness. We don't have to look far to see marriages that bitterness is rooted deeply. That we see there's anger and hostility. We see husbands and wives often moving in different directions. We see people in marriages with unrealistic expectations that lead to disappointment. We see unloving husbands and disrespectful wives. Uh, we see husbands that don't lead and wives who don't submit. In the wake of all this is a generation of kids who are growing up not having a clear understanding about marriage at all. And as we consider these realities, as we open up the Word of God, we realize that God has not left us just to figure this out on our own. The beautiful thing is that God has given us direction. And as I read the Bible, as we read our Bibles, we, would, we see the significance of these truths. We see the application, the connection between these ancient words and everyday life. Those, we often hear critics around us will say, well, the Bible's not relevant today that it's an old book, it's outdated, doesn't speak to us today. Well, as we're going to look at passages that we're going to see this morning, as we look throughout the Bible, we recognize the Bible is exactly what we need. That the Bible and God's Word is what we need to give us direction, to give us hope, to give us help. And that is what I pray this morning will happen as we share the Word of God this morning. That we'll come to better understand God's view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But even beyond that, that we would be a people who are committed to having a biblical understanding of these topics. Now, I know these topics can be sensitive, and I want to be aware of that this morning. I know that um, uh, these, oftentimes, the wake of sin leaves a lot of hurt. So I want to acknowledge that as we begin this morning. But I also don't want to water down or to soft-pedal what God teaches. So as we look at God's Word this morning, and if you feel like your toes are getting stepped on, or if you feel like, man, pastor's like beating me up this morning, it's not my intent. My intent is for us to teach the Word of God and then to understand that by the power of the gospel that we would live according to it. That's our hope. So let us pray, and then we'll look at Mark chapter 10. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, you've made yourself known to us in creation, in our consciences, 
Lord, in the history you've, devi- you've revealed yourself through prophets and most clearly through Jesus Christ. And you've given us the recorded word of God. We have your will made known to us in your word. And we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And I pray that you would help us to be good students of the Bible. That we would not simply be picking verses and that we would not be seeking simply to conform God's word to our desires, but that we would look and understand and read the Bible as it's intended in its fullness and that our lives would be shaped to the truths of your word by the power of the gospel. Now, Lord, we know that these truths that you call us to are not things that we can live up to on our own, and so we need your power. And we thank you that you've provided that to us through your spirit. God, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us this morning to see these truths and to desire and to commit to holding fast to them and walking faithfully in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Mark chapter 10 begins by saying this, And he, this is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed the man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, in this passage of 12 verses, we see lots of truths. And it begins by Jesus doing what he always does. He's traveling through the region of Israel. He's going from northern Israel to southern Israel. It says in, chapter, in verse 1 that he went to the region of Judea, which that's in the south. And as he travels there, the things that we've been reading over and over again, we read here. Because it says, again, a crowd gathered to him. Wherever he went, the crowds gathered. And as the crowds gathered, it says, and as his custom, he taught them. Crowds gather. Jesus teaches. That's the pattern. And in in verse 2, we see the Pharisees come to Jesus. And it says they came to Jesus in order to test him. Now, this is pretty important because these Pharisees, they're not asking a question to learn from Jesus. They're wanting to make a point. They're wanting to test Jesus. And and as we see this, their desire is to trip him up. Because look back with me a few verses, a few chapters to Mark chapter 3. As we've been reading through the book of Mark and we would get to this passage, we would see why are they trying to test him? What's up with that? And we would rewind back here. And in chapter 3, we read of the, the Pharisees in verse 6. Jesus has been pushing them. They've been asking questions. Jesus has given them answers they don't like. Hostility is growing. And verse 6 says, And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, that's a political party, against him, how to destroy him. So their intent, they want to destroy Jesus. 
So now, a few chapters later, they come to him with a question to test him. And they want to test him because not to find out, is he a, is he a good teacher, but they want to destroy him. And they're seeking to do this on this, merit, this question of divorce because it was a contentious issue in their day. Some things never change, right? It was a contentious issue in their day, and their desire was to create a division amongst the followers of Jesus to create, him, create some trouble in that way, but also likely to cause him trouble politically. Uh, the first, exam- first reason for this is that this whole issue of divorce was being debated amongst the rabbis of the day. And they were debating it based on this verse from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1, says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then the verse goes on to give some explanation of how she's supposed to respond and stuff. But the debate amongst the rabbis is this little phrase, some indecency. Because that's rather vague, isn't it? Some indecency. What is some indecency? Well, Moses wrote this in the book of Deuteronomy, and as time passed, two big primary schools of thought arose. One of them was by a rabbi named Shammai, and he taught a rather conservative position that some indecency only included very serious offenses, like adultery. And so the, the, this, this rabbi, things were really tight, and divorce, I mean, divorce is a, something you don't pursue at all unless really it's a gross, a gross indecency. On the other hand was another rabbi by the name of Hillel, and he taught that some indecency, some indecency could include almost anything. There's examples of even like burning a meal. She burns the meal, I'm out, looking for a better cook, right? So in that day, these are the, um, by the way, now I'm not going to ask. I'll say, how many of you would still be married if that was the case? But I'm not going to ask. <laughs> I've got a story about that. And um, Anyway, <laughs> we're still married. Um, but we recognize this some indecency. And listen, are these kind of the polls in our culture? You get divorced for whatever reason you want to. It doesn't matter. Several years ago, I was at a gas station filling up my car, and Trish and I, I don't think we weren't even married yet. And I'm filling up the car, and these two guys on the other side of the gas pump are filling up the car. And this guy's talking about getting married, and his buddy was there chat- chatting about getting married. And the guy says, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced. And I'm thinking, dude, that's, this is not a good idea. But in our culture, we see these same kind of views and then everything in between right that a very restrictive view of divorce and a very free idea of divorce we see that in our culture and the and the pharisees are trying to trap jesus because if jesus says is it lawful for man to divorce his wife a yes no answer divides the crowd those who are following hillel those who are following shammai and so the pharisees thought we get jesus to answer this it divides the crowd it starts to minimize his impact that was one of the ideas that are tests. Another idea of the test very likely had to do with what had happened with John the Baptist. We read back in chapter 6, and turn there with me to chapter 6, that in chapter 6 we read about John the Baptist, and he, is, he was confronting the king of the day about his divorce. That this king had divorced his wife 
to marry his brother's wife. His brother divorced. They divorced. And so that's what's going on. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, it says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful to you for you to have your brother's wife. So John was preaching against this, and ultimately John was beheaded because of his view on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He got his head cut off because of that. And so the Pharisees, they understand this has happened, and maybe one of their hopes was likely that Jesus would take a stand that would create some problems politically for Jesus. You know, Herodias finds out about this. Herodias finds out that, hey, Jesus thinks the same things John does. Let's shut Jesus up too. So as we see this, the Pharisees had no desire to learn. They're just asking questions to trap Jesus. Well, let's look at back to chapter 10 and to see how this unfolds. Well, in chapter 10, they ask Jesus this question. And he answers and he says to them, what did Moses, what does it say, what did Moses, what's the verb? What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate. And so Jesus says, what did he command? Mo- and uh, the Pharisees say, well, G- Moses allowed, right? We're going to look at that, but that's significant. But one of the things we see is that both Jesus and the Pharisees, both of them see Moses as an authority. Both of them are are appealing to Moses, who's an authority. And Moses is the authority. And we think, well, why is Moses an authority? Because Moses was God's instrument that he used to write the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And And so Jesus and the Pharisees both saw... Jesus and the Pharisees both saw the Bible as an authoritative book. And that's important when we think about issues like divorce, marriage, and remarriage. What's going to be our authority? Culture, my opinions, the opinions of others, the opinions of church history, the opinions of of famous preachers, of famous theologians. Who's going to be the authority in this? And we would argue that God's the authority. And that's what the Pharisees and Jesus are both agreeing on, that there is unity here. So as we see that, one of the things I want us to see this morning is that we need to trust the answers that God gives to us in his authoritative word. That God gives us answers, and we need to trust those answers. But, and we, so what we see is that Jesus and the Pharisees both affirm the authority of the Bible, which should be significant to us. But then we say, but, okay, but both of them see it as the authority, but they don't agree. So what good does an authority do us if we can't agree with what the authority means by some indecency? How do we understand that? Because this group is picking verses, this group's picking verses, and they both are making their case, and they're making their case what they say biblically. But, so how do we sort through that? Well, as we see that Jesus is asking, what did Moses command? The Pharisees are saying, what did Moses allow? Let's look at Jesus' response. He says in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And let's pause here. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is quoting the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, that God creates us male and female. Chapter 2, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined or holds fast to his wife. And so Jesus is quoting all the way back to the beginning. And now what we begin to see in that is how are we going to interpret scriptures? How do we make sure that we're just not like dueling verses? I got my sword out, you got your sword out, we're going to have sword fights. Okay, who wins? How do we sort through that? Well, what was Jesus' pattern? Jesus didn't say, hey, let's just look at Deuteronomy. He said, let's look at the rest of Scripture. Let's look at all the Scripture. Because as he backs it up and looks at the book of Genesis, he goes back to before sin had come into our world. And he looks at what is God's design. So we can look at what's going on in the sinful world, but he takes it back to Genesis to say, what did God design? Right? So, and we see in this that Jesus is showing us that we must examine all of scriptures if we're going to get correct answers. We just look at all of scripture. And what this means too is that we need to be good students of the Bible. We need to be good theologians who are understanding the, the breadth of Scripture and to see how it all fits together because otherwise we're, we're stymied by people who would make arguments about, about things in our culture today. It says, well, what about eating shellfish in the Old Testament? We're like, shellfish? What? I, I don't know but what they're talking about. And how do I fit that into the picture? And where does that fit? Well, what about, you know, you're not supposed to wear two kinds of uh, mixed clothing like cotton and polyester you shouldn't wear two kinds of clothing old testament what do you do about that and if we're not good bible students we're gonna be stuck when it comes to things like that but if we read our bibles well as god intends for us to to see the breadth and the 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 flow of scripture to realize god had an original design but sin has corrupted all that that God raised up a people that he gave very specific laws to for a very specific reason at a specific period of time, that he was using those people for that purpose, but then the fullness comes and Jesus shows up. He completely fulfills all of that law, so that law is no longer binding, but there are moral commands that flow through that because these moral commands reflect the character of God. And as we begin to put all of that together, we begin to see things more clearly, and we have a very consistent ethic throughout the Bible. But that takes some work. That takes effort. We need to become good biblical theologians. See, here's the, do- here's the deal. Everybody's a theologian, right? You all believe something about God, about Jesus. You all believe something. You're, you're theologians. The question is, are you a good biblical theologian? And what that means is, we've all got work to do to become better biblical theologians. That we study the Word of God, we seek to understand how it all fits together, so that we have good and solid answers whenever it comes to issues like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So what is Jesus teaching us? Well, what is going on in this? Well, back to Mark 10. You're still there, aren't you? Mark chapter 10, all right? So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, what did Moses, what did he say, what did Moses command? The Pharisees respond, what did Moses allow? And as we see these two ideas, 
what we see that what God commands and what God allows are often very different. Because Jesus goes to Genesis and talks about the commands of God's original design. But the Pharisees are talking about what God allowed because sin has come into the world. And the point that we need to recognize here is that Jesus teaches us that God commands what he wills. What God wants, he commands. This is how you do it. A man shall leave his father and mother, the two be joined together, and they become one flesh. That is what God's will is. That's what he commands. But we also see, though, that, that God regulates what is contrary to his word. And so because sin comes into the world and starts to create all this havoc in a culture, for instance, divorce, and divorce is causing all these problems because in that culture a woman couldn't get another job. She was going to largely be destitute if she's divorced. A husband just decides, she burnt my toast, I'm divorcing her. Can she get remarried and those type of things? And so what God did in his kindness was to regulate divorce and to say, this isn't my will. But because of the reality of sin in a broken world, this is how you operate. And so God regulates his, what, what comes because of sin is contrary to his will, but he commands his will. So what does God then command? What does God command when it comes to these issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Well, let's dig in here. Jesus begins by saying, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Why is there a commandment about divorce in the Bible? Because of the hardness of heart. He cuts right through it. He doesn't say, well, because bad things happen, because of this, because of that, all these million different reasons why. He says, because of the hardness of heart. Well, we recognize God allows divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. Is the hardness of heart a reality in our world? Absolutely. Who has a hard heart? I mean, before salvation, all of our hearts are like rocks. Our hearts are like stone, right? And because our hearts are like stone, that we are unable to do the will of God. But in salvation, what does God do? I'll get that. Just kidding. Somebody to get that, please? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So God allows divorce because of the hardness of heart. And I will make this statement. Divorce is always rooted in sin. Divorce is always rooted in sin. Now, I put on there very specifically, a result of hard heart or hearts. Because maybe not both, maybe there's one, there's certainly one heart that's hard, but because at least maybe they're both hard. But why I recognize that is because, because what is God's design for marriage? People commit themselves. In our culture, when people get married, they realize, I'm going to be married forever. And what happens? Why does it break down? Marriages break down because of sin. Marriages fall apart because of sin. On one part, on both parts, complication, a mix of all of those, but it comes as a result of a hardness of heart. In this bigger passage, you think, why is Jesus talking about divorce here? I mean, it seems like a random place to be talking about divorce. But what was he talking about right before this? He was talking about the fact that if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
He said that those who are the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who are servants. What does a hard heart say? I'm not going to serve you. You, just, you ought to serve me. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to serve you I don't, uh, uh, because you don't deserve to be served. Hardness of heart. Deny myself. I'm not denying myself. I've denied myself, denied myself, denied myself. And you've done this to me. There's hardness. There's sin comes. Jesus has been teaching in this, earlier in this passage about the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who serve. And he's been teaching that we must take radical steps to cut off sin. Whether it's gouging out an eye, cutting off a hand, we've got to take radical steps to avoid sin. And recognizing that, 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 that divorce is rooted in a hardness of heart. People don't get divorced because they're selflessly loving each other. Right? Because I become selfish. Someone becomes selfish. Unwilling to give, unwilling to love, unwilling to deal with sin, unwilling to move. And what happens? Hardness grows and the marriage ends. And marriage is in because the infection of sin goes unchecked. Marriage is in because the infection of sin goes unchecked. Problems aren't dealt with. Bitterness rises. Over time, bitterness grows. And what happens when bitterness grows? Hearts become hard. Unresolved problems, bitterness, hard hearts. Where does divorce come from? Hard hearts. Or a hard heart. And Jesus is confronting this. And he says, God, this is not God's design, but God allowed it because of the rebellion that exists in us. Well, Jesus goes on then, and he says in verse 6, but from the beginning, beginning of creation. And this is, as we deal with big issues, we need to run back to Genesis. What's God's design? How did God design things originally? That's where Jesus goes. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so what is this? God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage is, we're going to look at four different things. The first one is this. God's design is marriage to be a heterosexual relationship. He goes back to the beginning and says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. As we look at that in Genesis 2.18, God has said, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone because we're created to be created in the image of God. God lives as a unitary being. There's one God who lives in a perfect relationship with himself in all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God creates us in his image, he creates us for relationship. And so it wasn't good for Adam to be alone prior to the creation of Eve. So God creates Eve, and we're told that he created Eve to be like him. He created them male and female. And when God created Eve, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper, a, a helper suitable or a helper fit for him. Now, the Hebrew, it's a really cool idea. In the Hebrew, that idea of fit is opposite. Okay? It, it's face to face. Like I look in a mirror. When I look in the mirror, what do, I, do I see myself act exactly like I am? I see it reversed, right? 
Okay? So this, this opposite, when God makes Eve, he makes him his opposite. It's a face-to-face kind of thing. And we think about that when God put Adam to sleep, pulled his rib out, brings Eve back to him. Adam wakes up and he's like, whoa, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What does Adam see? He sees someone who is like him, but opposite. Now think about our hands, okay? Are our hands alike? Two thumbs, one thumb, yeah, two th- one thumb on each hand, four fingers on each hand, right? They, they, I've got it, right? But they're like, but face to face, they're opposites, okay? Face to face, opposites. And, and, and what happens with it? They fit together. That's God's design for marriage. That complementary relationship between a man and a woman. And as we see this, we see that these two distinct male and female, these two distinct genders are revealed in our biology, in our very created order. It's the manner in which God has designed us. And as we understand that, two individuals of the same sex may commit themselves to another kind of formal relationship, but it's not marriage as God defines marriage. God defines marriage as a face-to-face opposites uniting together. And so God's designed marriage to be a heterosexual relationship. God has also designed marriage to be a monogamous relationship. The verses say this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Okay? It doesn't say his wives, plural, exclude polygamy. It would exclude polyamory, which is some mixture of a certain number of guys, a certain number of ladies, or all jumping in together and saying we're going to be married. It's not God's design. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is one man, one woman, in a monogamous, a relationship. They're committed to one another. This is relationship, and so it excludes all the forms of marriage. We also see that God has created marriage to be a one-flesh relationship. And again, this is where this opposite idea comes together. Opposites fitting together, two individuals becoming one. In a marriage relationship, God's design is that we have a oneness in unity and purpose. The unity and purpose. But there's more than that. Because I can have that kind of oneness with all kinds of other people, right? But in this, it's talking about a one flesh. And this flesh means a physical union. And we understand this physical union is a face-to-face physical relationship. And we consider that in the realm of a sexual relationship that God has designed with males and females, men and women, that is a face-to-face physical sexual relationship. That's God's design for this. And it's only achievable by a man and a woman. And it is an intimacy that God designed for pleasure and for procreation. God designed it for pleasure, for enjoyment, and to produce life. To produce new life. That is God's picture of marriage. That it is heterosexual, that is monogamous, it's one flesh. And we see all of these fit together And then verse 9 it says, And therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. That God designed it to be a permanent relationship. Look how it says it in this verse. Therefore what the pastor joins together, therefore what the justice of the peace puts together, therefore what the captain of the ship puts together, let no man... Does it say that? It says what... 
God joins together. What that means is when we say, I do, God says, I did. When we enter into a marriage relationship, God is sovereignly working in that. What God joins together. And so we see this in this amazing interconnection between God's sovereign work of moving two people together and our free choice to to enter into this relationship. And and, and when we see people getting married, they're not saying, why are you getting married to this person? Well, God's holding the gun to my head and he's making me get married. That's not why we're getting married. I wanted to marry this person. I delight in them. I'm doing it by my choice. Okay? And I do that, and yet God is working in this. And we realize what that teaches us is that marriage is more than just a personal decision I'm making. God is sovereignly at work in this. And he puts us together. Listen, God puts us together according to a decision that we make. And we're united in him. One author has said this, why then is divorce a big deal? Because divorce is the breaking of a seal that is engraven by the hand of God. God puts marriages together. We don't have a right to tear them apart. That's what he's teaching us in this. And as we look at this, this picture of marriage, heterosexual, monogamous, one flesh, permanent, if we look at that as God's design, we can't help but to argue that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that creates life. It's a beautiful thing that creates flourishing. It's a beautiful thing that, that, that creates joy and delight. And yet sin comes in. And sin turns all of this in its head. And so now about sexual relationship, anybody, doesn't matter their sexuality, just get married. Monogamous, ah, just pick however many you want. One flesh, eh, we kind of like that sex part, so I guess we'll keep that one. Permanent, I'll throw that out too. And we see at every one of these points, our world just turns things upside down. But God has a better design. And so, at the, so Jesus answers the Pharisees with this, and apparently they just leave. It's not a good answer for them. So in verse 13 it says to us, And they were bringing children to him that he might teach, touch them. I'm sorry, in verse 10. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. So, interesting, the Pharisees were asking to trap Jesus. The disciples are asking to learn. They want to be learners. Help us understand this. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What Jesus is teaching is, he's asking hard questions, and Jesus teaches us a hard thing here, but he says that those who divorce their spouse, I'm choosing to divorce my spouse without a biblical warrant. The book of Matthew with Jesus, in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus add to this phrase, he says, except for sexual immorality. So that would be this biblical warrant idea. 1 Corinthians 7 would also talk about abandonment. But those who divorce their wife or spouse for an unbiblical or without biblical warrant commit adultery if they remarry. That's what the passage teaches us. As we begin to then unfold all of this in the scriptures and seek to understand what is the implications of this, the implication of this ultimately is, man, we need help. I mean, any, anybody here that's married, been married, hope to get married, think that I could probably use some help on this. 
every one of us because we are infected with this sin that can lead to divorce and we see all of this what do we see and what we need is this is that it is the gospel of jesus christ is what gives marriages help and hope for a brighter day the gospel is what we need why do we need the gospel because in the gospel we realize god's original created design has been infected with sin and we all rebel all of us are rebelling against god phrase that we would see in the gospel is listen you're listen every you are way more sinful than you think okay now it's because how do you know that that's what the bible teaches our hearts are deceptive and then, and then we get into marriage and we get we living with another sinner that we've committed our lives to our whole lives to whose sin do i start to see as bigger not mine right? I mean, my sin's not the problem, right? But I need to see my sin. I need to recognize that. And I, if I'm a sinner, I need help. And God has provided that help through his son, that he is, Jesus takes our sin and he dies on the cross and he raises from the dead to give us new life and to give us help and hope for things like marriages, to give us help and hope. So I realize I'm a fallen, broken sinner living with another fallen, broken sinner, and we need God's help. And God says, happy to help. That's what I'm here for. And to help you out in so many different ways. And we need the gospel because the gospel gives us hope. Hope for marriages that are good, for marriages that are a mess, for marriages that are yet to be, those who are longing to be married. That, that, that for marriages that will never happen, we need the gospel. People who long to get married but unable to be married, the gospel helps with that. Those whose marriages have ended, the gospel helps beauty of God's word, that he provides us help and hope for a brighter day. And as we think about how do I maintain this marriage covenant, and the key idea is, the big idea, I would say, how do you keep your marriage covenant? Keep your heart soft. What brings divorce? A hard heart. How do you avoid, avoid a divorce? Keep your heart soft towards God, towards your own understanding, towards your spouse, towards others? How do you keep your heart soft? That you need to stay humble. Remember the gospel. Remember that I am more sinful than I think. But, but in the gospel, I'm loved way more than I could ever imagine. I'm loved by Jesus. I'm a sinner, and so he wants to help me with this. That we would also not only stay humble, but we'd also guard our hearts that we would guard our hearts against idols, idols that say, I must have. I must have a wife that does this. I have to have a husband that does that. I, I can't live unless you do this. I can't live unless you do that. These idols that grow up, and we need to realize that the idols in our heart must be uprooted by Jesus. But also say, how do we keep our hearts soft, that we stay humble, we guard our heart, we solve problems? I, listen, how do you keep your heart soft? Solve problems. 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 Because what don't married couples do? Solve problems. And then, but what happens when problems aren't solved? Bitterness begins to take root. Can't believe he does that all the time. Can't believe she does that. She treats me like. And we don't deal with problems. 
We don't ask for forgiveness. I'm not wrong. I mean, I'll just ask you this question. When was the last time in your marriage relationship you said, I was wrong? (laughs) Point made. Here, try this with me. We did this before, but hey, I want you to say with me. I want you to say this. Say, I was wrong. Okay, now, I just set you up because now whenever you're arguing with somebody and uh, you don't say, I was wrong, you've just, con- you just demonstrated it's not a physiological problem. Your mouth shapes those words. Your brain can allow you to say it. Why don't we? Because my heart's hard. I'm right. Solve problems. Ask for forgiveness. Grant, forgive as we've been forgiven. That we realize, I just, they've wronged me and I just can't get over this. But listen, you've wronged Jesus in far greater ways than you've been wronged by anyone else. And we are told in Ephesians 4 to forgive as we have been forgiven. Solve problems. Listen, forgive as you have been forgiven. As we close this morning, take out your bulletin, and there is, I think it's a purple piece of paper. How do you keep your heart soft? One of the ways you keep your heart soft in a relationship is to check yourself. I would encourage, if you're married, take this home. I would encourage you to take it, discuss it with your spouse, think through it, discuss it. If you're not married, if you want to be married, if you're I mean, our camp staff, our students, others who want to be married, they're not. These are the kind of things you need to be thinking about your marriage should look like. But I want to encourage you to look at these things like, what do you like about your marriage? What don't you like? Finances, conflict, schedules, sex, worship, participation in ministry, your role as a husband and wife, kids, in-laws, all of these things matter. And I encourage you, listen, I'm, I, I've not asked permission for the deacons for this, but I'm going to do it because I think we can afford it. If you, listen, if you will work through this with your spouse and then come talk to me, we'll give you $20. I'm not joking. Because guess what? I'm burdened that there are marriages that are really struggling today. And you're not looking for help. And the longer your marriage struggles, and the longer it goes and you look for help, what happens to your heart? It gets hard. And I want to cut that off now. Get help. And I'm serious. We'll we'll give you $20. Walmart gift card probably. This is serious. God, listen, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, why? We don't even talk about this marriage, divorce, and remarriage stuff. If we're living according to God's word, if we're applying the gospel to our everyday life, we don't have to have big discussions about marriage. But we live in a fallen world where we're sinners and we continue to struggle. And so I encourage you, look at this, evaluate it, talk to your spouse about this, and say, listen, let's, let's work on this. I want my heart to be soft. Let's make sure our hearts are soft and that we're pursuing the Lord together in this. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We'll receive our morning offering. And my desire is that marriage, as your marriage would get to a brighter day as you apply the gospel, let us pray. Father, 
We need your help. Our culture needs your help. Our world needs your help. Our marriages need your help. Marriages that are yet to be need your help. God, I pray that you would help us to view the marriage, divorce, and remarriage from a gospel lens, that we would see that there is hope for a hurting relationship. And God, for those whose relationships have been broken, to know that there is forgiveness and there is healing and cleansing and the power of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we'd find the freedom and the joy in knowing that and that we would move forward with confidence in our relationship with you. God, I pray you'd stir our hearts to be honest with ourselves. Are we seriously pursuing you? Are we just kind of playing games and hoping you'll bless our game? God, I pray for marriages this morning. God, I pray that you would not broken marriage, those who are in them who are struggling, that you would not let them be comfortable in their broken condition. That, God, that you would stir them up and give them an unsettledness that would push them out of the comfort zone and to pursue help, to pursue change. God, help us to know that in the gospel we all are, all are wrong, we all sin. And yet in the gospel there's also forgiveness for all sin. God, I pray that you would cleanse us, renew us, and transform us. We thank you for the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.